Welcome to EIS Navigator, a podcast for UK venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We now have a tradition of a year-end panel looking back at the events of the last 12 months and forward into next year. Yet again, we have assembled a great panel of industry experts from the advisory and fund management communities, as well as the Trade Association, who gave another interesting and fun discussion. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the links in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries.hartmanco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So welcome to everybody for the year-end panel for the ES Navigator podcast. So we've got the same panel as last year, which is quite remarkable. So I'd like to welcome back Christiane Stewart-Lockert, who is Director General at ESA. We've got Keelan Doyle, who is director at Simvin Capital, and Neil Cole, who is head of Wealth Planning Solutions at UBS Wealth Management. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you, Brian. Thank great you. So, as usual, in case anyone didn't hasn't listened last year and or has forgotten who you are, we'll get little brief intros there, and then people can start to recognise the voices. So we have some distinctive accents. So, ladies first. We'll start with Christiana. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, so my name is Christiana. I'm the Director General of the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association, also known as ESA. We are the membership body for everyone using the EIS and the SEIS. So we represent the whole ecosystem in terms of the entrepreneurs, the advisors and the investors. And we really do three main things. We A lot of our work is around education and raising awareness of the schemes across the whole of the UK updates uh, and is sort of on the technical side and events and networking opportunities for our members and then also uh, crucially representing the industry to government and liaising with ministers, MPs and civil servants. And we'll come back to a notable success with that later on. Keelan. Uh, Yes, I'm uh, Keelan Doyle. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Simman Capital. Uh, despite the um, vintage of the principles in Sinbank Capital, we've, um, as a company, we've only been going about nine years, I'm going to say. Uh, we started our first fund in 2014, and we manage EIS funds and SEIS funds. Let's say probably 90% of it's EIS and 10% of it's SEIS. And uh, we, we've always looked at our SEIS funds as being our accelerator, if you like, or incubator for our EIS funds. Not all of them make it through. Um, but it's what it, it's it's been our philosophy since day one. When we first came into the market, it was a very different market. I think we were one of the ones who were sort of one of the first who were sort of tech growth funds um, in the market. But it's changed, and there's obviously quite a it, it's changed dramatically actually in the, in those years. And and it's good to see it's become a very vibrant market. Excellent, Neil. Yes. Hi, Brian. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me back on the panel. Um, so my name is Neil Cole. I work for UBS Wealth Management um, here in the UK. One of the things about working for a bank is that job titles change on a regular basis. So I do have a slightly different title to the one you gave me in the introduction, Brian. I'm um, head of private markets distribution for UBS in the UK, which basically means I look after the kind of the product set that we make available to private clients in the UK um, and by private markets that obviously covers the bigger kind of PE world, um, but it also very much covers UK venture as well. So VCTs and EIS come under my remit from a guess an advisory point of view. Um, so I think I'm probably here to, to represent advisors and, and represent mm-hmm. the end investor as well, because I spend a lot of time with UBS clients that are interested in, in kind of what's going on in, in private markets in general as an asset class. 
Yeah, yeah, and and as you noted, the idea is to get contrasting views because you, you you're here to represent advisors. Keelan's on the fund management side, and Christiana gives a more sort of regulatory or sort of industry wide perspective. So we hope we get a nice balance, uh, and I'll chip in. So as usual, we want to sort of look back on the last year and kind of discuss a little bit about what's happened, and then maybe at the end we'll look forward a little bit and we'll get you to do, do your little predictions about what you think is going to happen in 2024. So we can look forward to that. 2023 fundraising. Uh, Keelan, do you want to kick off with your perspective of how fundraising has gone for the year? Yeah, I think there might actually be a difference. I'd be interested to see what, what Neil thinks about this between VCTs and EIS. I know most of the people in the EIS market have had a a pretty, um, well, it's, it's been challenging to, to put it mildly, which is ironic because I think we can maybe get back to this later. It's probably a good time to be investing in EIS, but uh, it's been a tough time also. And it it seems like most people are, are, are with, with some exceptions, are are having a difficult time. With the VCT market, and I'm I'm looking at some of the information Alan Bridge has provided me with this, um, they, it seems VCT demand seems to be off in the advisory market and that the, the, the funds seem to be closing, taking longer to close you know, the, um, the, than otherwise, but it doesn't seem as though they're getting devastated. And, and not that the EIS market is, but it's significantly down. So it's it's still pretty tough out there. I think next year, we can get, get into this a bit later, but I think we're starting to see we, a background where rates are no longer rising. And that's usually, that's usually a precursor to risk on trades becoming more popular. Yeah, yeah. Neil, you see you seeing different things. Uh, so no, very very similar to Keelan. Although um, I think absolutely right that there's been a notable change in sentiment. I think over the probably the last quarter of this year. Um, so it has been a tough year. It has been tough to get investors to commit money to to kind of a long term asset class like like private markets in particular VCT and EIS, particularly where they have seen valuations come off uh, since the, the kind of the heights of, of 2021. So it's been a challenging market, but things do seem to be changing. There seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, looking at our figures this morning, we're now slightly up on 2022, um, which I think is good news. Um, we're still some way from kind of the, the peak years of 2019 to 21, where there was a lot of money flowing into these, these kind of products. But Things are uh, things are looking up, and I think I'm absolutely with Keelan. I think we will look back in a few years' time at now to be have been a great time to be deploying money. The the the, the fact that valuations have come off, while obviously not ideal for existing investors, is fantastic for new investors because now they're buying in at much more sensible and pragmatic valuation points, which generally translates into better returns into the future. And I think we've been sort of trying to drum that message home, and I think we're finally getting some uh, some traction on that over the last few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Christiana, what are you seeing from your cross-market perspective? Yeah, I think one of the things that's been interesting is we ran a series of um, 10 events across the UK called Ready, Steady, Grow, and, and you know, in, in a variety of cities across uh, the regions and involved nations. And one of the themes that kept coming up with that was that um, the 2021-22 and 2020 were kind of um, unusually good years and actually... Uh, this year has been tough, but it's more of a correction in line with the previous trend that was happening. So it's mm -hmm. not that this year is significantly worse than one would expect. It's more that the uh, we've had a couple of really good years. I think it is worth mentioning with that that um, the HMRC data, which came out in May, which 
is always a year behind. So um, this is for 2021, 2022, but it showed uh, record breaking levels of investment through the EIS. Mm-hmm. So um, they're really, really the most successful year since they started the scheme, which was amazing to see. And you started uh, mentioning uh, BCTs and um I remember last year on the podcast, we talked about how there was a lot of um, positive discussion around VCTs and and a lot of uh, interest there. I think, again, interesting to note that I think the AIC published some data showing that um, there was a 5% drop in 2022-23 for VCTs compared to the previous year. So I think it was Uh 1.08 billion compared Mm -hmm. to 1.1 the year before. Yeah, I, I think there was some su- mild surprise in the end that VCTs re- crossed a billion pounds for the year, for, for the last tax year, which is seen as like a threshold. But right up until probably the end, end of the year, I don't think people quite expected the industry to reach that. And, and certainly my take, you know, agreeing with sort of what Neil and Keelan are saying, VCTs are definitely not flying off the shelves. They're still raising money. It's still... They're still getting money in the door, but I don't think it's happening at anything like the same rate last year. So I don't think, I think it's pretty clear VTTs are also going to struggle to reach what they've reached in the last couple of years. And, you know, reaching a billion this this tax year will be very hard. But I think EIS is definitely very patchy. You know, and this is something I'm hearing from several people about. It just seems to be challenging. There there is an interesting um, statistic that PwC showed in Comparing Q1 funding, this is, I think, um, Christian at one of the EIS uh, events late spring, I think it was, and it was looking at Q1, and and it was looking at seed series A, series B, series C, and above, and the real collapse in Q1 and compared to back four years was in series C, it was down about 70, 75 percent, whereas you know seed and series A kind of held in there, a little down, but not not a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to go back in time and, and compare it to the post-financial crisis um, because I remember being at the coalface at that time, 2010, 2011, with Dyer and Venture really were difficult. And it, so it's interesting to put that in perspective. It's It's been tough, but it, it hasn't been a total disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting when you, you know, Brian, you mentioned that it's been particularly challenging for EIS. It is worth putting into perspective that EIS, there's about um, 2.3 billion invested through EIS every year and uh, just over a billion through VCT. So EIS is actually significantly bigger than mm-hmm. VCTs, which is something that I think is often forgotten in, in the way we discuss them. Yeah, I, I, I think our perspective is very much on the fund side of things. And EIS funds raise less money than VCTs. Mm-hmm. So we all, so mentally... But from an industry perspective, we always think it's smaller. But of course, you're right. There's a huge amount of these sort of private deals out there that, you know, whether it's family offices or whatever, that, yeah. that just sort of, you know, they're more important for EIS as a whole. But that's not something I feel I have any visibility into. And I don't know how I would get visibility into that. I mean, it's a challenge with EIS and SEIS for sure is that, you know, we don't have access to the data in the same way as uh, VCTs do. And we get the HMRC updates, which are usually released every May, which are really interesting to see. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, they do tend to be about a year behind. So it it is much harder to have access to that data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
So one thing I wanted to, coming back to VCTs, I wanted to sort of get people's perspective on is that having had two very successful years, you know, 21, 22 and 2022, 23, I think the cash levels in a lot of VCTs has risen noticeably over the last sort of year or two. And they're trotting out reasonable excuses, A, being, well, we want to support portfolio companies, uh, B, we think there's going to be good opportunities for reduced valuations. And and that's one that they never articulate, but we all know is that actually, yeah, more money means more fees. So we quite like that. But I don't think we've really seen that deployed yet. So I'd be interested in people's perspective on, you know, do, do you think VCs have too much cash? Do you think they should be deploying yet? As, as long as they're not telling you that the reason is that they can now earn some interest on cash, which they haven't done for the last uh, last few years, because that would not be a good justification. But no, I think it is definitely a concern. It's something that we look at. So when we do our, our due diligence and governance on, on all VCTs, is clearly a big factor as to, um, I guess, firstly, what's, and it, it does normally cause a drag. So what's the cash drag effect going to be? Is it too much of a, a proportion of the fund? Um, obviously, compliance with VCT rules as well. Um, a VCT can very quickly fall foul of the regulation if they keep too much cash on the balance sheet. Um, so we like to see that the managers are keeping a very close eye on that and making sure it obviously adherence to the rules. But then most importantly, of course, is uh, are they able to deploy that cash sensibly? Because um, the last thing that you want to see is a VCT looking, at, looking closely at the regulations and going, we We've got too much cash, we're going to need to actually deploy it and then going out and chasing the wrong kind of deals, closing deals too quickly, getting in at bad valuation points just for the sake of it. That, that's um, pretty much a death knell for a VCT if they're, if, they're, if they're following those kind of practices. So it's definitely something to look at very closely. Um, my personal view is, once again, there's going to be a huge variation within the industry of there are going to be some managers that have undoubtedly raised too much cash and aren't able to deploy it sensibly. There are others that, like you touched on there, Brian, are seeing that now, and I guess coming back to our previous conversation, now is actually a great time to be deploying money if you've got it. Mm. And it shows that actually I think the good managers are seeing opportunities at much more sensible entry points than they were mm -hmm. seeing in 2021. And they don't want to miss out on that, which is why they're again coming to market and, and raising money. And I don't mm -hmm. doubt that there will be some managers that can exploit that and can actually deploy the money sensibly at, at attractive entry points. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on because not everybody's going to be able to do that given the amount of cash that's out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so, so so you're definitely on the view this kind of there is a, perhaps too much cash within either VCTs or the venture capital industry as a whole. I mean, you've got a slightly wider perspective than us. On, if you on take the that. industry as a whole, I think yes, absolutely, yeah. But I, that's not to say that every manager is sitting on too much cash and they're they're not going to be able to deliver returns. Some some definitely will be able to. Um, but I think as a, the industry as a whole, I think absolutely it's a it's a concern given the the vast sums that have been raised in the last couple of years and the pretty limited amount of deal-making we've seen in, in the same time horizon. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think one of the flip sides about, we, we, we will come back to valuations, I think, probably again and again in this conversation, but having cheaper things is nice, but it, that all makes it harder to deploy money in the sense in that if a round is half the size it used to be, or the valuation's half of what it used to be, you can only deploy half the money in the round that you perhaps you did before. So you might still have to do more deals to deploy that money. 
Yeah, but then um, by the same token, there's also far more follow-on activity that we see now in the industry. And again, the good managers that have existing portfolios of good quality companies, what we're seeing is they're they're following on their money into those businesses in order to to basically not necessarily keep them afloat, but keep them keep them viable and keep them performing. Because what you don't want to see is good companies going to the wall during a difficult macro time because they run out of cash. So we're seeing definitely seeing an increase in in that, and that will that will take, pick up some of the slack, I think, from from what you're talking about there, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Keila, are you seeing sort of VCT participation follow-ons into your your portfolio? We've had a, num- a number of um, uh, either it, it happened or or interests in VCTs following on on some of the companies we might have started at quite an early stage. Uh-huh. I think uh, I think there you know in the not too distant past there was too much money changing chasing the opportunities. So there has been a chasing in effect. I'm not sure. I don't really have a feel for the overhang of how much money VCTs have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect there's some, but I, I mean, we as a matter of course have as a, always have had a philosophy of giving money in stages to companies. It's right from our get go, part of our what we call our life cycle mm-hmm. approach. And often starting at EI, SCIS, but not always. And for for a number of reasons. One is to deploy money from an investor point of view on a regular basis because there's nothing investors hate worse than having EIS certificates hanging, you know, not getting them for 18 months, which sometimes happens. Um, but the but the main reason is not giving too much money, and and this isn't everybody's approach to particularly at early stage when they're developing and may still pivot. You give too much money to people, it can become a science project, and they they go out and they try to build too much. That's mm-hmm. a very common problem in venture and. It's something that we, are, you know, we're pretty hands-on people, so we try to avoid that, in, mm-hmm. in many ways than others. Um, but, with, but, I, but I think following on in companies, as long as you're not bailing them out, uh, is is a proper approach. And it's very traditional when when things run into a tough times like now mm-hmm. that you you look at your portfolio and you you have to be very frank. Are oh, these guys going to make it? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. They're not a priority. These guys are a priority. They're a good company. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's difficulties in the fundraising. Maybe they should be going mm-hmm. for Series A. But that money's not available, so you know they they become a priority. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if I can jump in, when you know when we're talking to a lot of the entrepreneurs, there's certainly not a sense that there's too much money around. It's still very challenging as an entrepreneur to get investment, and whilst the best companies will, it's by no means easy. You know, we also have a record-breaking number of new businesses being set up and and it's great to see entrepreneurship thriving in the UK and it's clear that the government is really behind this and and that's been fantastic to see. So I think what is happening is deals are taking a lot longer, due diligence is taking a lot longer, the whole process is taking more time than, um, than previously or than people might expect. But I, I think, you know, there's still... A lot of a lot of great companies out there looking for money and looking for investment and and with some exciting prospects. Mm-hmm. I think, so, I think uh, Christiana, that's definitely the difference between what your role and my role. To my to my money, there's tons of people looking for money all the time, um, <laughs> and very few worthy. Uh, but that I guess that's the difference in in, in the job spec. Yeah, and and I think I think this reflects some of the challenges about. Being a fund manager is what we talk about. Maybe the discipline of investing, and this is a time when, you know, I, I think if we go back two years ago or three years ago, it felt like anybody could be a venture capital manager and invest in a company, and it would go up. 
Whereas now I think you're looking for people to actually be very sensible about deploying and, you know, VCT managers, if they've got portfolio companies, having the discipline not to say, well, actually, they're in my portfolio, it's a sunk cost, I've got to keep supporting it. But you want them to be actually be saying, does this business have a realistic chance of going on and, and doing what I, what I want it to do or what the, what the management wanted to do? It's probably easier being I, a manager than making that judgment because you get loss relief. So if something's not working, just kill it mm -hmm. from from a return perspective, yeah. rather than having a zombie. I'm thinking about discipline. I remember um, some investors getting a little frustrated in 2021 by quite slow deployment with certain EIS funds. And at the time, it was a case of kind of everything's going up. I'm missing out. Why aren't they? Why aren't they deploying my cash? And now looking back, I think that shows real credibility and discipline from some of those managers who were walking away from deals because of where we were in valuations. And I think we probably talked about it on this panel a couple of years ago. And I think actually that's again when you're looking and trying to judge a, a fund manager and the, the quality of kind of are they actually going to do the right thing for my investors? I think that's a really positive sign that they're not just doing deals for the sake of it. They are sensibly thinking about, right, how is this company valued? What is the possibility of me being able to grow that business and be able to make a, make a return on it? And if actually it feels overpriced, then they will happily, despite probably having done months of due diligence, a manager that will turn their backs on that deal and say, no, it's not for me. I think that's a, that's a real positive. Mm -hmm. so that, was, that was, I think, last year you mentioned that. And we were at this time last year pulling our hair out because we walked away from way more deals and then that's ended now actually and i'm thinking particularly at at our earlier stage for some reason the earlier stage valuation still stayed up there um but we it's really really changed um dramatically but it was very tough to walk away from a lot of com companies that were i mean in some cases we had people bidding three four times what we were prepared to pay that like that not just a slight difference really substantial differences in valuation the interesting anecdote i've heard this year is and I don't know where we are now, but certainly in the spring and the summer, I was chatting to managers and saying, and they're saying that a lot of the market has got to some sort of sensible position of valuations, but there's still somebody, and it's probably a handful of investors who still haven't marked down the valuations, or whatever, and still paying sort of where they were, where, where in sort of mid 2022 or or 2021 valuations, and and there were still people saying in the summer. Well, we've just left out on something because someone's offering, you know, twice the valuation rate or whatever that we we were willing to pay, and we're like, everyone's asking who's doing this, and nobody's be able to say who. But um, I think we'll find out. We'll find out in a couple of years. <laughs> Probably very. <laughs> it'll be. It'll become very obvious exactly who's uh, who's paying over the odds at the, at the moment. Yeah. But I'd like to hope it's not a professional investor, or or maybe it's it, you know, or maybe there's someone. You know, I mean, you start to think who who might be done money, and it's probably a newer entrant. Uh, maybe some, some you know, some I don't know family office that's jumped in or something, and and doesn't quite have done the homework or something like that. But or perhaps even government bodies. <laughs> yes. Well, we hope not. So valuations have obviously come down a long way, and you talked about the opportunity. Do we have the feeling that they've bottomed out now, or do you think? We might still see a little bit more of a slide. 
Uh, I think we're we're getting there. Um, so just again to I guess repeat my point, over the last few months we've started to see I think a lot more uh, kind of dry powder being being put to work in the industry, which suggests that uh, a lot of people are now seeing that the opportunity is right and that that it it probably has bottomed out. Kind of putting aside new deals, I think where there might still be some further pain to come is on valuations of existing portfolio companies that are held by by VCTs and and EIS managers. Because one of the things that's um, been very stark this year, and this is probably alludes to, I think, one of my predictions last year where I said there would be quite a variation in performance. Um, And we've definitely seen that this year. We've seen, particularly in VCTs, we've we've seen some VCTs declare NAVs dropping by 20, 25, even 30%, while others have maintained or even increased their NAV through through quite a tricky period. And and some of that may well come down to the quality of the portfolio, the nature of the portfolio. But I think there's also probably a little bit more pain to come where actually managers just haven't taken the hits yet on the valuations of the companies within their portfolio. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more uh, valuations marked down uh, in probably the next maybe three to six months, mm-hmm. just to kind of get everyone back. As it's kind of a, a, it's been a bit of a reset, let's be honest, over the last eighteen months, and we need to get everybody back to the same sort of level. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised by 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 that if there's a little bit more pain to come. Mm-hmm. I, I think you see uh, what we've seen last year, and I'm talking not just yet the, the broader venture market, a lot more convertible issuance, and that's always a sign of people. Trying to avoid not not always, but often trying to avoid down rounds in times like this, yeah. and then eventually that gives way because people can't demand a price deal. And I think there will be people who pay too much for companies who will have to take a down round on the chin. So there may be some some of that happening. Mm-hmm. But I think certainly for new entrants, people are coming new into the market or relatively new, or maybe just did a seed and they're coming back two years later. I think they are much more realistic, and the, and the there's we're probably at there's a lot of good value there now yeah well i i think you someone mentioned series c earlier and and these guys really have no have had no option if they want to raise more money and that you know valuations have had to come down mm. and i think i suspect there's probably a few that's the area where bcts in their maturing investments and some of them they're the largest investments in the portfolio who've gone on to do the c the d's the e rounds they're the ones who, you know, and, and a lot of cases they've been marked up quite a lot and they've they've given a lot back. And I think some of these BTs who've had substantial NAV falls, it's not been a huge number of companies and who's created that. It's you know, they've had this large investment that went to 12% of the portfolio and is now back to two. Um it, it you know, and, and there's there may be, you know, uh, it, it's more kind of that rather than sort of wholesale across the board. You know the whole portfolio has been marked down by by that. So, so yeah, and still from from what I'm seeing, very few company failures as well, which I think is just to sort of make it sound a bit more positive. Where we have seen NAVs fall, it isn't because there's been a whole load of either kind of defaults or companies going under within the portfolios. It's generally been a valuation reset as opposed to companies getting into trouble. And I think that's a real positive because obviously if we were seeing small companies kind of falling by the wayside and going under through these, then that would that would probably indicate something a, a lot more significant for uh, performance from, from these kinds of vehicles. But to, to my knowledge, we haven't been seeing that at all. We've, we've seen very few failures. I think, yeah, I was just going to say, I think a challenge as well, particularly in terms of uh, uh, the deployment of funds has been that 
and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but the uncertainty around the sunset clause has meant that given, you know, invested companies typically have a sort of 18-month cash uh, runway, anyone investing now knows that for the next round, that takes them past the sunset clause. And when we weren't sure what the situation would be around then, that does make it um, more challenging and and mm. is something that investors will likely have in the back of their mind thinking for any future rounds, how will a potential lack of existence of EIS affect the ability of this company to raise? So um, obviously, as I said, uh, very pleased that that isn't the case now, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit, but yeah. I'm sure we mm-hmm. saw that having an impact, the uncertainty around the future of the schemes. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's positive. I, th- I think it's very interesting in terms of failures to contrast the UK with the US, because I think in the US, in Silicon Valley, there were a lot of companies in 2021 that got serious amounts of funding that probably should not have been funded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're starting to see the washout in Silicon Valley of these companies not being able to raise a second round or a third round or the next round because they're not actually viable companies. Whereas in the UK, we ha- yes, we had a, a related bubble, but we didn't go as far at the extremes that we've seen in the US and Silicon Valley. And that makes me wonder, and, and maybe this is a sign of we have better manager discipline, hopefully, or, or whether it's luck, but maybe we or, or maybe the failure we've still got to see a few failures wash out. I don't know. I, I think it's a there's going to be a fundamental reset in US VC how how they think about this as an asset class because I remember being struck. I think it was 2018. One of our company, an augmented reality company that we have, was in Google in a group called GSV's. Um, um, what do you call it? Accelerator. There was eight companies. They were mostly global. I think one was American. There's a German and a Venezuelan and a Hong Kong and and various. Uh, and on demo day, which was at Google's headquarters, there was tons of early stage VCs and angels and literally hundreds of people. First of all, they couldn't believe the EIS because they they don't get anything near mm-hmm. as generous. But they have a much more developed infrastructure. You know, they have a lot of entrepreneurs over years with them recycling. You know, they'd make money on a on a startup and they'd go and invest with 10 others and be mentors and whatever. And that was very different from when when I um where where I used to work where Neil does at UBS when I first moved to the UK in the early 90s. And there was no VC industry back then in the UK. Well, it was quite developed in the in the US. And so it's been remarkable what's happened in that time. Absolutely remarkable, even the last 10 years. Just a remarkable transformation. I mean, just to think that we are ahead of American fintech which apparently we are, I'm sure they measured this. Uh, it's quite a rem- uh, remarkable, uh, given where we, where we each were 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but the thing that I think is going to change about the American model is we, I used to do this in presentations showing people who invested in Uber, because Uber IPO'd roughly 10 years after they, their first seed round. And on the uh, S1s, they had which you file when you do an IPO, when Uber finally did that, they had all these people on the cap table, you know, Mr. John Smith or whatever, often less white bread names than that, it should be added. But um, it, um, the, the people who invested 20,000 pulled out like over 100 million, right? Just mm-hmm. unbelievable returns. And I think those those big winner-take-all bets are not going to be as frequent. And so the people I met in the Valley, they didn't mind if they had 90% of their portfolio fail. 
mm-hmm. because they each either did or claimed to have gotten into Instagram or into uh, mm-hmm. Facebook or they're an early investor in, if you go back a bit, Apple or, or whichever one. And I don't think that's it's there anymore. I mean, we used to say that valuations in Europe were more subdued because it's harder to scale than it is in America. I don't think an Uber could have really started in Europe. It uh-huh. kind of America allows for that. But but I do think that, that, that their philosophy is going to change because recent years you've seen UK venture outperforming US venture. And I think they're seeing the cracks in the model. And, you know, you'd often get this, any VC in, in Europe would tell you, um, someone looking at a comp in um, a comp role in California, they go, oh, look at there. They have this by whatever metric, you know, they're getting three uh-huh. times valuation. Uh-huh. I think those days are, if they're not over, they're passing. And maybe maybe this downturn is is what's going to really change the perception there. I, I was in Texas last April at um, the big Web3 blockchain uh, thing and is, uh, exhibition, should I say, is called Consensus. And boy, if you think it's tough here, the Americans were just... You know, it's a bloodbath like I haven't seen for a while. Now, admittedly, Web3 and blockchain particularly got hit hard by this, but but still, it was pretty noticeable. Mm-hmm. So, Christiana, you mentioned about scheme renewals. I yeah. think, you know, it's, it's all time we gave a big pat on the back to Christiana. Um, and I know it's not her by herself, but you want to tell us um, about your success for the year? Yeah, well, thank you very much, Brian. And it was it was absolutely a team effort and we couldn't have done it without our members. But I think that the fantastic news from my perspective and, um, you know, especially we were talking about it a lot on the podcast last year that I had hoped that there would be mm-hmm. information of the future of the schemes by the end of 2023. And I'm delighted that in mm-hmm. the autumn statement a couple of weeks ago, not actually in the main statement in the house but in the corresponding documentation Uh they um, announced the extension to the sunset clause on the EIS and VCTs for 10 years to 2035 Uh that's absolutely fantastic you know there's still there's still it's still got to go through the legislation and is subject to a few details but really really excellent to see the government's commitment and I think that is really what came across was they, you know, throughout this year, they've at several points released statements saying it's the government's firm intention to extend the schemes. We absolutely see value in the schemes. But the reality was, given the kind of uncertainty we've seen in government over the last two years in particular, that didn't seem to be enough to um, sort of allay the industry's concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, give certainty to the entrepreneurs that the government really wanted. And I Uh think, you know, this time last year, it was enough when we were still uh, a little bit further out from the sunset clause. But as we got closer to the April 2025 deadline, people were becoming increasingly concerned. And I think they realized they really had to make an announcement um, in this fiscal statement. Um, And so it's fantastic news that they've done that. And I think that's giving the industry, entrepreneurs and investors across the whole of the UK some much, much needed certainty and reassurance at a time of otherwise quite challenging economic uh, circumstances. Yeah, yeah, because I remember, I remember last year I, I I sort of came on thinking it was kind of like a done deal and you firmly put me on my place about um, <laughs> there's still a bit to go, so... <laughs> Yeah, but no, so it's uh, it's it's really fantastic news. And, you know, I mean, genuinely, since they were created, the SEIS and EIS have accounted for 
30 billion pounds of investment into 53,000 companies. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that the UK is one of the best places in the world to start a business. Mm -hmm. And earlier this year, we actually had someone from the French government talking to us about creating an EIS in France. So they're, they're schemes that have been internationally recognized for their success. And I think, you know, it's fantastic that the government have extended them. And worth saying as well that um, the Labour Party in their startup review also specifically have uh, talked about how important the schemes are uh, to entrepreneurs and to innovation in this country. Mm -hmm. So it's been great to see that cross-party support as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it gives some reassurance. So I have a funny feeling, yeah, if this podcast is still going in 2020, 2033, we'll be having a very similar conversations again. Because, <laughs> John, do you think the what looks like the impending election next year, the Labour Party, will that have any noticeable impact on EISSCIS VCT? Or will it remain largely untouched? I know it's impossible to predict, but... I think, you know, I mentioned the startup review that uh, was published last December, this time last year, and um, uh, Rachel Reeves wrote the foreword for that. And in it, she specifically talked about the schemes and, and how they were really important basis for innovation and entrepreneurship in this country. She specifically said this review would form the basis of their manifesto for the next election. So I think um, Labour have gone to... Uh, huge effort to reach out to business, to reassure business that they are, you know, a friend of business, that they want to support business, that they're listening to business. And um, they they recognize, like the government, that startups are absolutely critical to our economic success and, and innovation. And so everything I'm seeing from what they're saying, particularly regarding this very early stage, um, EIS, SEIS kind of innovation and entrepreneurship side is is very supportive and recognizing the value of that to the UK economy. You know, it's such a contrast. I was speaking with some of the BBCA last year who's been involved with with, with the, this issue and others. And um, I was recounting a story in 2019, just before the election, Johnson versus Corbyn. And we were asked, it was uh, one of those forums, you know, various competitors of mine um, at Intelligent Partnership, one of those eight fund managers speaks. I think it was up in Leeds or Manchester, one of the two. And we were asked by a lot of, there was about 45 IFAs in there and wealth managers. They were asking, um, if Corbyn gets in, do you think they'll get rid of EIS? And everyone said, oh no, there's too many jobs created. And I said, no, he will, he will. And um, and I when I recounted this to the BBCA guy, because it's just, that kind of belief system, right? Doesn't believe that wealth comes from private sector. And um, I, I recounted this to the BBC chap, and he he said to me, they they reached out to McDonald uh, and, and Corbyn numerous times, many times, and they never returned one of their calls. So oh. it really shows how how the world has changed. Yeah, I was there yeah. in in October. I attended both the uh, Labour Party conference and the Conservative Party conference, and and. Both I found, you know, very keen to engage. And we had a lot of very positive conversations with MPs at both um, conferences, which was great. And from, from the advisory side, uh, can I just 
echo the the well done and, and thank you to Christiana and the team because it makes a big difference for us as well. Um, and the, the morning after the autumn statement that's, that's just happened, we had a briefing for all of our advisors here um, with one of our economists and the economist got up and said what a boring and uneventful autumn statement it was. Um, I was the next speaker and I, I had to say I beg to differ because actually there was this kind of, and it was kind of a buried paragraph within the statement. I was, it's a shame it wasn't actually part of, part of the speech, but it makes such a difference for this part of the industry because people were starting to become aware of the sunset clause. We were starting to get more and more questions from clients and from advisors. And no advisor in their right mind is going to recommend a client goes into a long-term investment when there's a, a kind of a, a threat of an axe hanging over the scheme that, that could, could happen any any moment. So, so the, the 10-year extension, I think, gives everyone a lot more certainty and a lot more peace of mind. So it will definitely make, it, make a big difference. Thanks, Neil. I mean, I have to say I did have a few uh, slightly anxious minutes because I think there was something like three or four minutes between the Chancellor sitting down and then uploading the corresponding document. The document. <laughs> I already had a few messages from members asking because obviously he hadn't mentioned it in the speech. And so was uh, was keen to see what the documentation said. Hey, FAP, and obviously it was it was very positive and and a relief that it was included in that. But but yes, there, there were a few concerning minutes until it was uploaded. Yeah. So the other success, which is now a little older, was the increase in the SEIS limits, which took effect from the start of this financial year. And I know it's going to be a while before we get any proper statistics, but I was just wondering if we were. So if, if any of you were seeing any positive effects or any effects at all from that change? Yeah, so I, I, I'm happy to jump in on this person. I think, um, as you say, it's still early days and um, it will take a bit longer to actually see see the data coming through. But anecdotally, I've had a few people talking to me about starting SEIS funds, whereas previously they, they haven't had an SEIS fund. I think certainly the increases in the threshold are really crucial in terms of um you know if you're talking about uh the level of investment a company can raise increasing from 150,000 to 250,000 that's pretty significant in mm-hmm. terms of what the company's doing so fantastic to see that and i think again i mentioned this in the podcast last year but particularly for the regions outside of london and the southeast um that age limit makes a big difference because I have spoken to quite a few uh, entrepreneurs who weren't able to use the SEIS because by the time they found out about it or by the time they were ready to raise investment, they were already two years old. And so they were past the age limit, whereas now that extending to three years, that makes a significant difference in terms of giving entrepreneurs that little bit longer to raise um, investment through the SEIS. So I think anecdotally, it is starting to make a difference. Um, I think also, and, and it would be interesting to see what Neil says on this too, but um, you know, EIS is obviously tends to be more popular with um, financial advisors than SEIS, but it might be interesting to see if that changes now, um, given these the increase in the limits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for, um, um, unfortunately, the answer is, from a, certainly UBS point of view, we still don't recommend SEIS 
um, because it's a little too um, it, it's hard for us to do the due diligence on uh, the, the managers to be honest we only recommend funds it is obviously much higher risk and it's much harder for us to be able to demonstrate kind of a bit more certainty in, in the quality of the manager on, on CDIS that, that may change and actually this is a move in the right direction and it makes CDIS available to, to 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 more people to get involved with, and hopefully it is something that will develop over time and it can get on our radar. Um, but at the moment, it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. So, what does our SEAS fund manager think? Well, um, as I said, SEAS is maybe ten percent of our of, uh, AUM, but uh, an important part because it that two fifty just one hundred fifty doesn't go very far, and we we openly used to refer to our SEAS as um, a loss maker, which given the time we spent, because we we have a, a philosophy that's very different. People have different philosophies. They're not one is better than the other. But some people invest in 50 a year. We invest in like five a year. But we spend quite a bit of time on them. And one of the things we ran into two years and three years ago was not just that the valuations we had to walk away from, but the deals were getting snapped up a lot quicker. So they wouldn't wait for the diligence to happen. And, and um it, it, so it's good. I think I would say the most important thing is the 250 limit, but you, Christiana is absolutely right. The three-year rule is also, since trading, is important uh, because you could get situations where people put their own money in and then maybe get a grant, particularly something like a deep tech play, and then they'd fall foul of SEIS. And it just, yeah, it didn't mean we wouldn't invest in them, but it just made it easier to, to go. So I, I think it's a fantastic move. And I think it... I can't help but see how it doesn't help. You know, and SES is important because it's the beginning of the infrastructure, isn't it? I mean, it moves up through EIS and VCT and Series A and whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't see any downside to it. Mm-hmm. We actually, it's interesting the behavior of some SES. Often they're the more sophisticated people. We have people like one guy who's one top research guy, Morgan Stanley. He just loves SES, comes in every year for undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't had people, I know Neil was talking last year about people who come in for VCTs and do the whole 200 grand. Um, and I know yep. one of the big banks was telling me they do, they have people, I think they said 80 or so, did the full 2 million in EIS if you do KIC. We haven't had anyone come in for 200 grand yet on SEIS, but for, we often have 50, 50, 100 are the two most common. They don't come in for 10 grand and they're yeah. often quite sophisticated, but they just, it's, if you particularly have a capital gain, what, 13, 14 pence on risk? That's pretty attractive. You don't have to get too many right to make the whole portfolio sing. So there's been one or two other regulatory changes this year, and I thought I'd ask about consumer duty, uh, because I think from the advisory side, it's being pitched as a very big change. I'm not quite sure in practice, but it certainly I, I think it's going to impact our market um, in some sense. So how, how is consumer duty going? Yeah, I, I don't. From our point of view, I don't think it is a huge change because it is building on a lot of the principles that were there anyway. And I think we've always, obviously, being a, a big Swiss bank, we always tend to err on the more conservative side of things anyway. So we've always been checking our communications, making sure that they're transparent and fair and easy to understand. And I think what consumer duty has done is it's added in another layer of kind of checks and I guess thoroughness in making sure that everything that we do that gets put in front of a client um, is 
is giving the client the best possible experience and that it's it's it, it's absolutely outlining all of the risks, the benefits, the costs, all of that stuff in very plain, simple language. And it, it's kind of, it's given us an extra level of rigor. Um, but like I say, I think from a principle point of view, it hasn't really changed what we do. It's just made us more thorough about it. I mean, Brian, I know you've written on this uh, extensively, and I think, um, you know, one of the things that ESA has done is we worked earlier this year on creating a fee transparency chart um, because fees are in, uh, an area that do come up for discussion. And I think it's important for transparency around that and for uh, people to understand what fees are charged at which points to both investors and investee companies. So that's something we worked on and launched um, in at Easter time to try and just uh, create more transparency and, and better understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say, I think, uh, I think consumer duty largely is, is great. I think transparency in financial markets and particular retail markets, mm -hmm. because in professional markets, it, it, it goes without saying that you have to be transparent and you don't do business with, counterparties again but i think far far too often over years that retail investors have and you know rdr addressed part of that and i think consumer duty can but there is one question i have and this is one for christiana because i do think they've gone a little bit overboard on one thing which is the what i do you know the george orwell uh what was it from 1984 two minute hate when I referred to that, that at the top now we have to put, can you take two minutes out and re read why you can lose all your money? And, you know, if you follow EIS um, properly, you can't lose all your money because you get on a hundred pounds, you get 30 back. And if the company fails, you get another 30 back, depending on your tax situation. Now you could argue that if you get advanced assurance misleadingly, that may, you know, you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You could lose but as long as you follow the rules, unlike most other assets, you can't lose all your money. Um, I, I don't know if anyone else in the, I, I know that some of the EIS fund manager things, we all sort of bicker about that clause a little bit. But does that, you know, like CFDs, for instance, you can lose all your money and more, actually. Um, but but if you do EIS properly, you can't lose all your money. Does anyone else bring this argument up? I think the tax reliefs is treated as separate to the investment which is perhaps why there is that approach. But I do think that there needs to be more education around the tax reliefs. I mean, you mentioned um, loss relief then, which I think is not always fully understood and um, it's important to raise awareness about that. I also think that there's a focus um, for, for many good reasons on the income tax relief around the schemes, but actually, the fact that investments through the schemes are capital gains tax-free is a really big, important incentive. And I think that is something that um, could also be shared more widely and understood better. Well, it's um, it's interesting to see what, ha what, what can happen because we've got a situation which I'm sure the, the train always shifts with tax-efficient investing, BR to VCT to whatever, but I'm sure at some point, assuming labor gets in, but that looks pretty likely, what are they going to do? You know, there's been, I think it was a white paper produced on capital gains talking about aligning it with income. Now, Rachel Reeves has said that's not going to happen, but the reality is they're going to have to find money somewhere. And uh, what are they going to do with pensions? Are they going to bring pension? I can't imagine they're going to not cap pensions again. Are they going to align CGT? Probably not right away, but they may have to. All of these will have an impact on whether you choose to do an EIS or not, or a VCT. 
But I, I noticed, I mean, you've been at one of our presentations when I do a comparison of the two. And it's surprising how some quite sophisticated advisors don't realize that EIS is an IHT product, for instance. They don't necessarily realize that there's the difference between CGT deferral or relief. They don't understand um, loss relief, as you say, you know, which are really fundamental to the product offering. And you've got this unusual um, situation at Chanaka where you have, um, because of the way portfolios work and that you expect, you know, a couple of companies usually to fail and um, then, you know, maybe yeah. to do okay and then a few to do really well. And so you can have a situation in which you've had a few companies fail and have received loss relief, but that the portfolio overall is up. And that can be um, quite a unusual or, or uh, counterintuitive uh, aspect for people to kind of understand. So I was going to say that's exactly how we try and educate our clients on EIS that treat it as a portfolio and don't be alarmed by the losers. And we always say, obviously, the losers happen before the winners as well. And we've seen plenty of portfolios like that where overall the returns are fantastic. And the message I always say is with EIS and the SEIS, your your downside is significantly capped by the tax relief, but your upside is unlimited. And each part of the portfolio is treated completely separately in that way. And that, that's the real beauty of EIS. And I, Keelan, to answer your question, I have exactly the same issue with you, that now every single bit of EIS marketing document, every single EIS marketing document has a box on the front page that says, don't invest unless you're prepared to lose all of the money you invest. And that just, it seems alarmist. And I think any client reading that is going to be instantly on the back foot and very, very nervous about what they're doing because it, it sets completely the wrong tone for, for what the, the investment is trying to do. Now, I, I understand where they come from because it's important to realize it's a risky asset. But yeah. You have to look at risk on an after-tax basis. It doesn't make sense. That's why you get the tax breaks, right? You expect failure. Yep. And, and I always say to people, um, you know, if you don't understand failure, don't get involved in VCT or EIS. And, 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 but if you look at advisors, certainly ones that are doing their job, they don't put 20% of their assets in, in EIS. They put five, maybe 10, depending on the, on the client suitability. And within a client suitability, even if you lost all your money on EIS, and you have, I mean, just think of this, you had three managers, 10 investments in each EIS fund, it's a chance you're gonna lose all your money. And that's before tax. Well, it can happen, but even going through times like now, there hasn't been mass failures uh, and it's been tough times. So it's probably unlikely, particularly if you've done proper diligence on the managers, the, it's just a bit, you know, as you say, it scares the horses unnecessarily. It is interesting that, you know, going back to the HMRC data that I mentioned earlier, one of the things uh, that was I, that I found particularly um, fascinating about it was the fact that more than 50% of people using the EIS were investing £10,000 or less. Um, so actually, you know, you sometimes get this perception with whether it's angel investing specifically or, or EIS and SEIS in general, but... Um, the the fact that you know people have to be investing very very large amounts of money you know hundreds of thousands of pounds every year and actually the reality is a lot of the individuals using the EIS are as I say investing ten thousand pounds or less. Well, remember Neil, I don't know if you remember a few years back we were in the Treasury and I believe it was consultation on KIC funds. And yep. uh, I was talking to you, and it, it was—I think it was just before patient capital review came in, or around that time. And you were saying, "Well, you've always been growth. Like as soon as you got involved at UBS, 
you were never going for the asset backed um, and you were going yep. for and you said most of the people in educating and I I think you've been there a sufficient time now probably most of the UPS people are well educated uh, on, on EIS VCT etc but the the people who had bad experiences were say someone who invested in a single company their brother-in-law's whatever restaurant and it went wrong and they blamed the the, the, the wrapper for the investment almost and you know it's an educational process, as Christiana has said, isn't it? It's going around and and and, yep. and realize how important this is to the UK economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, that exact scenario. I've, I've had clients tell me that EIS is rubbish because they uh, they invested in a company through a mate at the golf club, and that company went under, and they <laughs> and they, uh, they they lost they lost they lost their capital. I was like, I'm afraid that's not the EIS that's rubbish. That's perhaps your due diligence on your investment selection that's uh, that could 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 be improved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's it's interesting. I've, I've done a little bit. You know, I mean, everybody knows. I think now I've done some work on asset allocation generally. Yeah. But I think looking at within the portfolios to sort of the diversification you need within the portfolio, which I've, I've done a little bit of work on, I haven't published anything. And I think you need a bigger diversification than, say, an equity portfolio, because the assets give a wider spread of returns. And I don't know if that's quite appreciated. So, so yeah, and I think EIS fund managers, to some extent, don't do themselves any favour because there's some people running around saying, oh, we'll give you six investments in a diversified portfolio. And it's like, well, actually, that's not really a diversified portfolio, I'm afraid. You need more like 60. So um, we've come to a time where we, want, we, we sort of look back over the last year. Maybe we want to start looking forward to 2024. And what do we see happening next year? Well... Can I jump in and just say that next year is the 30-year anniversary of EIS, which is really exciting, particularly now that we have the um, a bit more certainty around the sunset clause. Mm. And um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to celebrate everything that these schemes have enabled uh, the, for the UK economy and entrepreneurship and innovation. And one of the things that I don't think is particularly well recognised is just how many businesses most people use in their day-to-day lives that have benefited from either SEIS or EIS at some point. And, you know, I I appreciate that um, I work for the EIS Association, so um, Mm -hmm. I I probably engage in this more than most, but there are so many products and um, things that I use that I have at a later stage come to realise were funded through EIS. And whether that's, you know, some eco dishwasher tablets or makeup brand or whatever it may be, there are so many different companies that have benefited from these schemes. And I think it's a really important opportunity in 2024 to take the 30-year anniversary of EIS to really recognize that. So yeah. watch this space. We're, we're planning <laughs> some, some big events okay. um, at Easter so, and uh, some, some appropriate celebrations. Okay, so we're going to have a big party. Excellent. Neil, how do you see the outlook? So the outlook... Generally, I think uh, in the kind of macro world, it's 2024 is obviously going to be dominated by politics once again. Um, but this isn't a politics podcast, so I'm not going to start talking about general elections on on either side of the pond. So let's let's try and let's try and go a bit more positive and and kind of bring it back. And I guess full circle from the, I think the answer to the first question, which is around the level of investment that we're seeing and the level of activity. And I think to be honest, 
the, the kind of the 12 months between last podcast and this one, it's been a pretty dry period in uh, kind of private markets generally, and that covers VCT, IS, and PE, and that there hasn't been a lot of activity. The macro environment hasn't been great. We've seen very little in the way of exits. We've seen uh, difficult investor sentiment, which has mean that, that obviously fundraising has been more challenging. Um, so I'm going to bring it back to the point that I made at the start, that we started to see light at the end of the tunnel. Things are changing, um, seeing more deals taking place. We're seeing, I mentioned, certainly flows into the investments that we offer have massively picked up in the last quarter. So I hope this is a real change in investor sentiment that people can see that things are going to improve. We're going to move into a different interest rate environment next year, where there'll be far more talk about interest rate cuts than interest rate increases. And I hope that increases positivity and we start to see a lot more activity in terms of um, both deals on the manager side, but then also actually kind of that risk on appetite on the investor side. So it's a little bit of rolling my prediction from last year. It's taken longer than I hoped, um, but <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to see a, a real kind of change in, in the next six months or so. Yeah. Keon? Um, I've got three, three points for next year. But before that, I want to say, Christiana, last year you mentioned that there was going to be an upsurge in female founders this year. And I'm pleased to say that Simman invested in a few female founders, much more than we had in the past. So it certainly came true in, in our world. Uh, but the three the three things that I think are going to characterize, first of all, from a macro point of view, it's going to be tough. Um, we may, I mean, there were some bad numbers again today. Um, maybe we slip into recession. Maybe it's... It, but I think that, you know, there's throughout the year, there's going to be a debate, I think, when, when the interest rates fall. But that's a huge shift because not too long ago, it was how high are they going to go? And I think most people, with very few exceptions, unless something in Russia or something really blows up, it's hard to see interest rates going up next year. It's really more a matter of how, when they come down. But that's that point of inflection where bear markets turn into bull markets. So... When we were talking in our valuation discussion six months ago, Brian, you had me read uh -huh. the PVCA thing when the bear market had just started, it's 18 months ago, uh -huh. June 2022, and there was a panel and no one could remember a tech bear market. And in fact, no one could remember 2010. <laughs> and, and, and this is at a time when I'm telling my team, everything's overvalued, we're not touching it, walking away. We even last year, and much to the chagrin of my salespeople, we almost gave back our SCIS money because we just thought, well, I'd rather, I'm not going to invest in something I think I, well, people are going to lose money in. And a lot of them wanted it for carryback, right? you know, so in January. Now, we didn't end up going down that, down that route, but we did ask them, we said, if you absolutely need carryback, that this isn't for you. We refuse to invest in, in substandard companies. That's that's what, what the difficulty, but this is different now. now. Now, recently, people are throwing in the towel, and we've been saying, no, bear markets don't last forever. And I think we're at the end of the bear market. There'll still be some companies that fail invariably, in maybe quite a few, but the bear market is over. So you heard that here first. Okay. <laughs> um, second thing I think is going to be a big characterized last year is this year that's passed. I think the world got to know something about AI. Now, we've been investing in AI company. I can't remember the last time I invested in some company that didn't have some AI element, but certainly generative AI really has, has stormed the barricades. It was the story of the year in tech, I think you'd have to yeah. say. The story next year is tokenization, right? Tokenization mm -hmm. is the story of next the next few years because major asset classes are are all moving towards tokenization. And, and it's not crypto, It's mm -hmm. right? That's 
for, for those of you long enough in the truth to remember the early days of the internet, remember what the internet was. It's not, it looks, <laughs> we used to even call it the internet. You assume it's the internet now. But blockchain really comes to the popular the popular mm -hmm. imagination this year. Um, not too long ago, we've got a few um, DLT investments, blockchain, uh, Web3, whatever you want to call it. But we always concentrate on things that were real, supply chains, custodians, not cryptocurrencies, which is rubbish. Uh, they have a. They have, if I lived in Venezuela, I'd probably rather hold Bitcoin than my local currency. I'm not saying they don't have any um, uh, use, but 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 you know the fixed income market is going to token. Uh, money markets. You see the big guys, Fidelity. You see Aberdeen got a money market token fund. You see uh, the big one last year was uh, Franklin Templeton. And it, it, the market has grown up, and it's continuing to grow up. You're going to see property. The big um, prediction is derivatives. One of our companies is about to do the first tokenized diamond. This may or may not happen, by the way, but it looks like it's happening in February or March. And it's the CBOE is going to use that as collateral for the derivative contract. Mm -hmm. That could be a huge um, issue. So I think tokenization is going to be on every... EY did a study. So the crypto market is, which people think of as Bitcoin and Ether, is about one and a half, two trillion right now. Their prediction at the end of 2025, I don't think it's going to come near this 450 trillion. That's enormous growth. But it's going that way. As many people say, one day, most things will be tokenized from works of art to fixed income, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. So that's a big trend. That's something to look out for. And then the other big thing, which you wouldn't know it because all the city guys are being laid off and the mid-market, you're seeing massive consolidation with all the investment banks. So there's M&A has had a nuclear winter. I think that's going to turn around, particularly in tech next year, big time. We're already starting to see. What we're seeing now is the precursor of that where people mm -hmm. want good deals but they're going to have to get back and start looking at the future. And uh, I think it's we're going to see a real resurgence of tech M&A next year. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to second that one because actually I was, I was going to ask people specific predictions. And I think my, my prediction for next year is probably more in H2. I think we're going to see a few more exits. And I think there is going to be desire. You know, economically, I think we've got to grind for the next few months uh, and maybe even the next year. But I think by the end of next year, big companies will start to be looking beyond that. And they'll look to say, where am I going to get my growth from? And some of that will come from buying the successful startups and successful, well, the growth companies that, that, that I think every, everyone in our industry is investing in. So I, th I think I'm optimistic that that uh, we're going to start seeing some more of that in the second half. I, th I think it's probably bigger for 2025. That, that that's my source of optimism. I think I think I'm very sanguine on fundraising. I think I think this year I don't see city bonuses being terribly big next year, or mm -hmm. certainly in the new year. So I think this is going to be a soggy year for fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that that I see enough momentum into 2020, 25 to you know maybe maybe by Q4 of that you know. So first half of first quarter of 2025, that might be a bit better, but I, I think it's, it's just up. as well VCTs are sitting on all that cash to invest in, isn't yes. it? Yes, <laughs> fundraising is going to be so poor. I think there's um, real growth in awareness, though, and it is challenging when interest rates are high. But obviously, you know, if inflation is high at the same time, then then that that doesn't really uh, mean that your cash in a savings account is doing particularly well. I do I do think we are. Um, 
seeing a shift, though, in terms of approach to entrepreneurship in the UK, and in particular, um, you may have seen the data that 150,000 women started businesses this year, which is the highest on record. And mm -hmm. what was quite um, um, particularly significant about that was that the largest growth was amongst 18 to 24-year-old women in the Northwest. And I think this is where, again, from a regional perspective, you know, Manchester is a fantastic place to be right now. We've, we've done quite a few events and speaking engagements in Manchester, and it's really exciting to see the growth of the industry outside of London and the Southeast. And I think that's something that we're going to continue to see next year and, and also the, the rise of entrepreneurship. And, and I think there's been a big shift in the last 10 years in terms of people's approach to entrepreneurship in the UK, mm -hmm. which is only a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I hope that's a positive one. So usually we ask for specific predictions. I think Keelan's already given us a couple. Neil, do you have any specific predictions next year? I think I've kind of, kind of covered mine. And yeah, I think mm. um, I, I'll third the view on M&A, I think, um, for, for the reasons that Keelan's outlined. But also I think you've got a number of existing fund managers that are going to have to start delivering exits soon. They've had a very dry 12 to 18 months. There's there's, there's pressure on them to do deals and, and return cash to investors. Mm -hmm. So I agree there'll be a pickup in, in, in exits in, in 2024. And in terms of investment themes, I had two down. So AI, Keelan has covered. I also think despite what our world leaders are, are trying to dial back on uh, decarbonisation promises, I think that will still be a key theme in the investment world. I think whether we like it or not, or whether world leaders leaders like it or not, we we have to move somewhere towards those those kind of net zero targets that, that we've outlined. So I'm sure that will continue to be a theme in the investment world as well. And certainly there's demand for it. We're, we're still seeing demand now for, for products that are focused more on positive uh, kind of economic and, and social impact over and above just pure financial impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was going to say something similar in that that's something we've also seen a lot of people specifically wanting to invest in green tech or climate tech or, or um, impact uh, businesses. And, you know, there are some amazing things happening thanks to EIS. And I think that there's one business doing sustainable aviation fuel, for example, which could have a massive impact on, on the environment. So in terms of a specific prediction, Brian, I know you, you were asking us for specific ones. I do think we'll start to see... Um, the extensions in the SEIS limits having an impact and an increase in investment through the SEIS, which would be great to see. So I'd love to chat to you all day. You know, we, we, we've had a good hour. So I'd like to thank Neil, Keelan, Christiana. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast again and having another great conversation and giving us lots of insights into what's been going on. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed the year-end panel as much as I did. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonico.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe up to the podcast on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear, then please give us a review of lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time. I'd like to wish you all a very, very happy and prosperous new year. <laughs>